0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our teaching team. And uh, man, hope you had a good Thanksgiving. My guess is Maybe some of you are here that aren't normally here because you're with family or whatever, and we want to just extend a special welcome to you. So thanks for, thanks for being with us today. For those of you that are a regular part of our church, uh, this is our last Sunday in this particular series on Wisdom and Dizzying Times. Next week, we're going to begin a series for Advent called Word Made Flesh. And we're going to actually spend a season of time really looking at uh, what, it, wh- what we see in John chapter 1 about how Jesus, the eternal Word of God, came to uh, dwell among us and so if you want to start reading in John chapter 1 and reflecting there we'll be spending some time there but that's where we're going to go right now we're going to finish this message and this is funny at least I thought it was funny as I was preparing this week that today we're talking about contentment in a world of consumerism (laughs) any of you go shopping on Friday I mean, this is funny, right? Like, Black Friday, we got Cyber Monday tomorrow, right? It's just full onslaught of advertising and everything else between now and Christmas, and so I thought this was kind of interesting. What strikes me as interesting about this particular message and this particular topic is that, in some ways, it's the least obvious and also the most obvious thing that we would talk about in a dizzying world. It, it's least Obvious in the sense that we look at anger, we looked at lust, and how we use our language and our words, we looked at the needs of poverty, we looked at those things over this series, and, and you might go, okay, consumerism? Like, is that really a thing that's dangerous? And the fact that we would maybe even ask that question shows you how dangerous it is. On the other hand, it's so obvious. I mean, we're just inundated in this consumeristic culture, and uh, we're not gonna be able to fix that today. And we're not going to be able to solve that today. Today is going to raise a lot of tension. And I'm not going to resolve it, not because I wouldn't like to, but because I can't. And so I want to say up front, get this, this is not going to be a call to monasticism where we all just kind of move out into the desert and kind of get off the grid. That's not what this is about. This is a call to say, how can we be faithful to Jesus? How can we show that our supreme allegiance is to Jesus Christ and not ourselves and not the system of the world? How can we live faithfully and yet be in a world that is constantly drawing us to be just consumers? How do we do that? It's going to be tension. It's not going to be easy. I'm not going to resolve it. And so if you walk out of here going, gosh, that was frustrating, mission accomplished. That's what I'm going to go for, all right? So here's what we're going to look at today, uh, is, a, is three different things. The first one is the danger of a consumer identity. We're going to look first at the danger of a consumer identity. This is a consumer identity that says more is better. And there's a danger to that. And, and so get this, as we look at our message, before we get into Proverbs chapter 30, this just kind of helps set the stage. The, the, the problem isn't consumerism. The problem is all of us taking on a consumer identity. Because I don't know anybody that's just like, you know what, I've really studied all the different philosophies. Consumerism, that's the one I want. Right? No, one, no one thinks like that, right? We don't think ourselves into this, but we do, without even realizing it, take on an identity of consumers. Where every good and service and experience and even relationship is something to be kind of consumed. And so that's our real danger. How did we get here? Because it hasn't always been like this in, in our world. And so, so a brief history lesson might be helpful. This is interesting. In, in 1850, six out of ten people lived on a farm in the United States. In 1850. That's not that long ago as it relates to history. Six out of ten people worked on farms, and most of the people who worked on farms also made most of the things they used, right? They grew their own food, they made their own tools, they built their own barns, they churned their own butter, they made their own candles, they made their own clothes, right? Most people working on a farm, maybe they didn't buy everything, but they at least produced a lot in addition to what they consumed. It's not like that anymore. The Industrial Revolution really changed that significantly and what happened in the Industrial Revolution is all of a sudden you now had more goods produced than people who could consume them. So with technology and with innovation and with factories you had this ability to produce all these goods that no one needed (laughs) and no one frankly even wanted. Just as an example, Henry P. Kroll was a guy who, uh, we'll come to that quote in a minute. Henry B. Kroll was a guy who uh, worked for Quaker Oats. He was the founder of Quaker Oats, and he built in 1882 a mill that automated the ability to create oatmeal. Now you go, yeah, so, well, here's the thing. Hardly anybody ate oatmeal in 1882. They ate sausage and eggs and bacon and potatoes. They ate that kind of stuff for breakfast, you didn't need oatmeal, right? So you had these options, what are we gonna do? Beca- that's just one example, right? There was another thing I read about th- this person that with this one machine could create more cigarettes than anyone even sold the year before, right? You just could create all these different things. And so you have these options. Either you cut back on production, because you go, gosh, we can produce all this, but no one needs it, nobody wants it, let's just not make as much stuff. Or what's your other option? Increased demand, increased consumption, right? You either lower production or you increase consumption. Well, we as a culture went with B. (laughs) (laughs) And so enter into the scene advertising, right? Advertising has been around forever, but if you look at the ads, particularly in the mid-1800s, what you see is they look like classified ads. They're just text. All of a sudden, with the Industrial Revolution, we need to now ramp up people's desires, people's needs, people's perceived needs. And in order to do that, now we got to tell stories, and we got to attach famous people to it, and we got to have pictures, and we got to have color, and we got to have all these different things to start kind of driving up our need, right? Get this. People in this culture, in this time, they were thrifty. They didn't have lots of extra money. And so you had to actually, through advertising, change the way people thought. You couldn't, you, you had to just completely rearrange their thinking. Here's what Henry P. Kroll, that founder of Quaker Oats, here's what he said. He said, my aim in advertising was to do educational and constructive work so as to awaken an interest in and create a demand for cereals where none existed. That's what he's saying. I had to, I had to do advertising to educate people. Don't you know how much you want this thing you've never had? I had to to awaken an interest in them for cereals, right? I read the same thing about toothpaste. You know that a lot of people didn't brush their teeth every day? And you know who educated the public that you needed to brush your teeth every day? Colgate. Right, and just go on and on and on. There's all these things. We didn't even know we needed it. And then advertising comes on and tells us, oh, we need this. Oh, i got to have this. Then you have post-World War II, And the economy booms, there's more money, now there's more needs, and over time we develop this consumer identity. What does this mean? What this means practically is we live in an age where what we think is more is better. I can't get enough. I want more. I want better. I want more because more is better. I just got to have more. Rodney Clapp was an editor of Christianity Today. Here's what he wrote in an article about this. He said, The consumer is schooled in insatiability, never being satisfied. He or she is never to be satisfied, at least not for long. The consumer is tutored that people basically consist of unmet needs that can be appeased by goods and experiences. Accordingly, the consumer should think first and foremost of himself or herself and meeting his or her felt needs. The consumer is taught to value, above all else, freedom, freedom defined as a vast array of choices. Amazon, Costco, at least with Costco, they don't give you too many choices, right? You, you want olive oil, you just get one kind, but it's this big, right? <laughs> Right? So we, we love this. We love our freedom. We love our choices. We love to have all these different options, and we can compare, and we can shop, and we can do all these things to buy because we don't, I mean, I was thinking about this. I don't make anything. I don't have anything in my house that I made, that I produced. <laughs> Nothing. I got to buy it, right? And that enters the tension. Most of us don't either, and this is not a call to say, you know what? We all ought to go live on a farm and churn butter. That's not what this is. But it's saying we live in this, in this world where it's really interesting because we do need the stuff that we need. we got to buy it somehow. we got to, in that sense, be consumers. And yet we have to do that without be, having a consumer identity, right? This is not like a few weeks ago when we were talking about sexual sin, like, well, I need just a little bit of sexual sin. No. <laughs> no, no, no. How much adultery do you need in your life? None. None. But you're going to have to buy stuff. You have to. So how do you do that without taking on this identity of a consumer? And this consumer identity, it just shapes all the ways that we think and act and behave. We're always on the search for more. Some of us live where we live because we were on a search for more square footage. Or more land. Or more whatever. This shapes what we buy and why we have so much debt. No payments until... 2021 so we buy these things that we don't really need and can't really afford because we've convinced ourselves that we needed it and so now we buy it this impacts our schools how we think about our school options I think about with uh, with my kids when we there was a stretch where we homeschooled them and we decided for our family we wanted to send them to, to school somewhere well that became a paralyzing and dizzying thing if any of you tried to do this Right, because you can open and roll your kids across any boundary. Right? like when, it, when I was a kid, it was like, you can go to the local school, you can go to the Catholic school, or you, you can't afford to go to the private school, so never mind. You, those are your two, and you can't afford to go to Catholic school, so you can go to the local school. Right? That was the choice. <laughs> now you can open and roll across school boundaries. There's five to ten good charter schools all around. Right? It's like, oh my gosh, and you just feel paralyzed, but you start to weigh this. You go, oh, well, this didn't really meet our needs, and so we're going to move to this school, and this didn't really meet our needs, so we're going to move to this school, and we just kind of move and move and move and move and move all over the place all the time with all of our different things. We join this gym. Oh, I go to Mountainside. Well, but there's the Orange Theory just opened up. Well, there's three CrossFits right by it. Well, there's, right, and you have all these different things, and so we just, we're inundated with these choices. Consumerism begins to impact our relationships. It even begins to impact our marriage. Where rather than seeing it as something that is permanent and committed, that we're going to be faithful to no matter what, well, marriage is now open for reevaluation. Because you were meeting my needs before, but now you're not. You were giving me the goods and services that I was hoping for, but not anymore so now I reevaluate it this impacts church this is what's so interesting about trying to do pastoral shepherding ministry in a consumeristic culture right you have people who are looking for a church experience based on what they want what makes them feel good what they like well typically what people don't like is you calling them in and saying hey This is a problem. This is an area you need to grow. This is an area you need to change. And so what happens is, when that happens, when we start shepherding, when we start saying, hey, like, we're going to actually help you, challenge you to grow as a disciple. Whoa, 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 I didn't want that. I just wanted some good music and a guy who made some halfway funny jokes once in a while and a place for my kids to have fun. So it just impacts everything. This consumer identity. Now, this You you may be going, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, you sound grumpy. (laughs) I'm not. I'm just trying to get us to think. You may go, well, so what? So what? Like, this is just the world we're in. What are you going to do? What's the big deal? Well, here's a few things. Here's a few so what's. Number one, insatiability isn't a Christian virtue unless it's directed at God, right? The psalmist says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. But insatiability, this constant desire to have more goods and more experiences and more things that are better, to constantly enjoy those things, that's not a Christian desire. What about patience? What about self-control? What about commitment? What about love? Those are the historic Christian virtues. Insatiability for stuff and experiences doesn't fit that. So this is a head-to-head confrontation with what the scripture says is important and what our world says is important. That's one reason it's a problem. The second is it starts to turn relationships into transactions. Well, what can I get from this friendship? How can I network with these people because they might come in handy for me someday? That would be useful, right? And our whole web of relationships turns into like LinkedIn whether it's in person or actually using the site. where it's transactional. What can this person do for me? What What can I get from them? What can I give to them so that they'll give to me? It's transactional. Now listen, the opposite of love, we say this all the time, the opposite of love is not hate. It's selfishness. And when you are the center of your world, when I'm the center of my world, and we're saying, i got to have this, I need more, I need better, because more is better. When, when I get there, I'm now thinking only and primarily about me. And that's at odds with love. And Jesus said, the two greatest commands, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's not thinking about you and how you can consume And here's the third reason, and this actually leads us to our text, is that this can lead to denying the Lord. This insatiability for stuff, this consumer identity, this I always got to have more can lead to denying the Lord. So if you have your Bible, look at Proverbs chapter 30, beginning in verse 7. This is what we read just a moment ago. Proverbs chapter 30, beginning in verse 7. It says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. That's number one. Right, he says, I want, to know, I want two things, God. Two things I'm asking. Remove from me falsehood and lying. God, I want to be honest. I want to have integrity. I want to pursue real virtue. Number two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Then it continues and you go, well, wait, I thought he said two. <laughs> the, the, the thing that looks like the third thing is actually just an elaboration of the second thing. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Verse 8 is an amazing request, isn't it? Remove from me falsehood. Yeah, okay, we'd expect a godly person to say that. But give me neither poverty nor riches. Really? Like, I get the request to not have poverty, but not riches either? Right? I don't know if you're like me, but every time I hear about somebody winning the lottery, I think, oh man, their life's ruined. Man, why would, why would anyone want to win the lottery? It just ruins your life. And then the next thought you have is, I'd give it a try. <laughs> I mean, I'd mean, i be willing to take a stab. I could probably do it better than them, right? right? Because there is this sense in which you go, yeah, I don't need riches, but I'd sure like them. And and here, this this guy writing the Proverbs is saying, give me neither. I don't want the extremes. I don't want poor. I don't want that. I don't want riches. I want to be somewhere in the middle. That's not how we view anything in our world. We want to be the best we want to be the biggest, we want to be the most influential, we want to be the most powerful, we want to be the most beautiful. That's not the attitude here of this proverb. Saying, God, I don't want to be unemployed, but God, I also don't really want to be CEO. Could you make me middle management? I think about this with my daughters. They're not in this service, so I'm going to say this in this service. I pray for them, Lord, make them pretty, but not too pretty. Like, pretty enough to find somebody, but not too pretty. Like, I want my kids to be smart. I don't want them to struggle because they have certain challenges with learning or reading or just processing things. I don't want that. That's a difficult thing. If you're in that situation, you know the the difficulty of that. I don't want them to be kind of too low-end intellectually. But I also don't want them to be so smart that they think that they're smarter than everybody. But there's actually a great deal of wisdom to this prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Now, why? Well, keep reading. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Right, so this is the danger. The danger to having this consumer identity is you might actually get everything you want. And then if you get it, you know what you'll think? I got it. This is what Josh talked about last week in his sermon, how we tend to think because we have this idea that if you work hard, you'll do well, we think, well, I'm doing well, so it must be because of me. And you'll start to deny the Lord. It's interesting that when Jesus talked about our main rival, with, the main rival to God, he didn't say, you can't serve two masters, you'll either serve one or the other, you can't serve God and Satan. He didn't say that. What did he say? You can't serve God and money. Because if we have too much of it, if we have too much stuff, we'll be full and we'll think, ah, I don't need the Lord. So, what do we do? Or if we go, okay, more's not better. Well, if more's not better, then less must be better. Right? That's the way some people kind of react. Well, I don't want to kind of go in this consumerism culture where I just can't get enough. So, you know what, I'm going to swing the pendulum way over to the other side and actually say that poor is better. And that brings us to our second point, which is the danger of overreacting. The idea that poor is better. And this is what some people do. Well, if you were just radical, you would would get rid of all that stuff and you would start to give everything away. If you just had a crazy love, you would just get rid of all of your stuff and you'd give it away. This gets very popular in Christian world, right? Because we have this assumption that poor is better. And and we have that assumption because Jesus did associate with poor people. Jesus did say, I don't have a place to lay my head. But when Jesus comes back, how many of you know he's going to be decked out in some real nice clothes with a horse, with the best kind of horse stuff anyone's ever seen. I don't even know what it's called. You could help me back there. You tell me later. I don't know, saddles or whatever. See, I didn't grow up on a farm. So, So poor is not better. Now, here's the thing. This is interesting. Consumer identity is new but greed isn't, right? So you look through the history of the church, they have not really had to be talking about a consumer identity, but one of the seven deadly sins from early on in the church's history was greed. And so this is a real real thing As we've been kind of pushing into this as a faith, as a Christian faith, okay, how do we not be greedy? How do we not be satisfied with just stuff? How do we actually pursue the life that's in God? And the common reaction is a poverty theology, that poor is better. It's better if you don't have stuff. It's better to give all your stuff away. We do that because Jesus did tell some people to give their stuff away. Right, there was the rich young ruler who said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you tell me. And I said, well, I, I keep all the commandments. Jesus said, well, how's that going? He said, great. Which, by the way, you can't keep all the commandments. So he broke the first one because he was kind of thinking of himself a little too highly. Jesus said, all right, well then here's, here, here's, what you, here's what you should do, is sell everything you have and give it away and then follow me. And that guy wouldn't do it. Why? Because he actually did have a God ahead of God. It was his money. Jesus knew that, so he challenged it in that particular guy and said, give everything you have away. But that doesn't mean that Jesus told everyone to give all their stuff away. Right? Zacchaeus was a rich tax collector who, when he met Jesus, decided to give away lots of his stuff, and Jesus did not say, Zacchaeus, you're still keeping some of it, give it all away. He said, wow, salvation's come to this house. Look at how big of a change of heart there's been with Zacchaeus. Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, I did a whole sermon on him uh, some years ago. He's the guy, he was a rich man who actually took the body of Jesus down and buried it in his tomb so that Jesus could be buried in a rich man's tomb. We wouldn't have a resurrection without Joseph of Arimathea because otherwise the body would have just been left there and picked away at bir- by birds. He was a rich man and Jesus never said, hey, you've got to stop being rich. So poverty theology is not right. The New Testament celebrates generosity, not poverty. And the proverb here says, I don't want to be poor. Look at, again, verse 9. Back up in verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God saying, listen, here's the problem, is if I'm full, if I have everything I need, I might think that I have it because I earned it, and I'll deny God. But if I don't have enough, I'm going to be tempted to steal, and that's going to dishonor God because I'm going to need to take care of some things. So God, give me neither poverty nor riches. So if more isn't better and poor isn't better, what's better? The path of wisdom is better. The path of wisdom is that godliness plus contentment is better. That's the path of wisdom. That's this prayer in Proverbs 30. Give me enough, is what he's saying. And you know that the, the, the word enough is fundamentally what the word content means. If you're content, it means what you have is enough, it's sufficient, you're satisfied, you're good. The path of wisdom is godliness and contentment is better. So what I want to do is I want to actually have you turn over in your Bible to the book of 1 Timothy. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, this is on page 993. Because the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in this letter to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor that he had been training and developing, and he writes this letter to him. And at the end of this letter... He uses this formula, godliness plus contentment, to show us what's better. 1 Timothy 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 6. Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. And as I said, that word contentment means enough. Godliness your heart's in the right place, you love the Lord, you love people, you're not perfect, but you're growing in righteousness, you're growing in faith, you're growing in obedience, you're growing in generosity. That's what godliness is. Godliness plus contentment, plus enough, plus I'm satisfied, plus I'm not insatiable. Godliness plus contentment is, what does he say? Great gain. The word I'm going to use is better Right, we said more is better. No, it's not. Poor is better. No, it's not. Godliness plus contentment is better. That's what he's saying. Why? Verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. I- I'm going to do a-, a funeral on Tuesday. I'm not overseeing the whole thing, but I'm giving a message at this funeral for my brother-in-law's mom. And that's uh, just... This- you know, she was a meaningful person in our family, and so I'm going to Ohio to do this funeral. And as I've been in conversations with Mike and with Emily, and we've been talking about his mom, and I knew her, and no one has ever said, you know what, you know what I love about Sandy? Man, she had a great house. Boy, you know what I loved about Sandy? Boy, she was so fashionable. She, she was. But you know what they say? They say, wow, Sandy was radiant. She walked in a room and it just brightened up. You know what they say? They say, she had such a servant's heart. Everywhere she went, she just looked to meet the needs of other people. Why? Because that's what really matters. And so Paul says, you brought nothing into the world... You're taking nothing out of it. What matters is who you are. What matters is your character. What matters is your godliness plus your contentment. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. With these we will have enough. Do we have food and clothing? Yeah. We have food and clothing is is it enough and the answer if we're honest is no why because we're insatiable we need more we need better yeah but my clothes are kind of old yeah but, but I need something else right this is how you know you're rich do you ever walk into your closet look at a full thing of clothes and go I have nothing to wear Paul says, with this you should be content. Well, look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich, now stop right there. In the context, what is it to want to be rich? Right, this is always a good debate, right? When you, especially you know, Congress is trying to do tax reform now, and it's like, well, how does this affect the rich? Right, it's always a great question. Where do you draw the line at rich? Who's rich? In this context, what does Paul mean is rich? If we have food and clothing, verse 8, with these we'll be content. We'll have enough. But those who desire to be rich, what's he saying? But those who desire more than that. In other words, if you want more than just the basic needs met, you want to be rich. Now we're in danger because we're going, uh-oh, I already am rich. We'll get to that in a minute. But notice what he says, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Does that sound familiar? For the love of money, verse 10, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Get this. He's not saying it's wrong to be rich. He is saying that if we want to be rich, if we want to have more than just the basic stuff, we got to watch out. we got to be careful. Because we are in danger. It doesn't mean we're, you know, a rich man can't go to heaven, but Jesus did say it's really hard. Why? Not because God hates rich people, but because rich people love other stuff besides God. That's the many temptations, the many senseless and harmful desires that plunge us into ruin. Watch out, he says. Okay, so I shouldn't want to pursue riches. What should I pursue? Well, that's what he says in the next verse. Look at verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, listen. Don't pursue wealth, don't pursue riches, don't pursue, I gotta have, I gotta have, I need more, I need better. Don't pursue that, pursue God. What if you were insatiable for righteousness? Oh God, I always want to do what's right, even when nobody's looking. God, make me, make me that way. What if that was what we were craving? Oh God, make me a person of steadfastness, who no matter what happens, I just stay there like a rock, and I don't move, and I stay committed. What if that's what we were insatiable for? Paul says, listen, you have a heart that's a want factory. You can't just go, I'm going to stop wanting that. No, you have to replace it. You have to say, I'm going to start wanting this. I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to take hold of eternal life. That's what's going to matter to me. I'm going to live for eternity, not for now. But, we might ask, but what if I'm already rich? Well, Paul has something to say to us, too. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, and and by the way, most of us in this room really are rich. Not everybody, but most of us are. You typically know it because you walk in your closet and you say I have nothing to wear, or you 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 find money in your dash, in your little cup holders, and it's sticky, so you throw it away. Like little coins. Anyone ever done that? Am I the only one? I'm super rich. (laughs) Here's the thing, though. Here's why we don't feel rich because we have no margin. We are rich. We just don't feel rich because we've got no margin. You know why we have no margin? Because we're insatiable for more. As for the rich, verse 17, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that's proud, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This is really interesting. He says, listen, if you're rich, and by the way, that's most of us, if you're rich, he doesn't say, stop being rich, get rid of all of it. No, no, no. He says, here's what you need to do watch out that you're not haughty, that you're not proud, that you don't forget God and say, well, I did this. No, be grateful. Be thankful. Communicate to God that you realize that you have everything you have because of his generosity to you. Also, he says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. You you can't count on this. Stock market's great. It's going to go bad again. Housing market's great. It's going to go bad again. It's just uncertain. But set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you know what that means? That means you should enjoy the stuff God gave you. So you got a great house? Great. Enjoy it. Your kids are at a wonderful school? Great. Enjoy it. You have money to be able to get good gifts for your kids because there's that bike they really want and there's that gaming system and that'll be so fun. Great. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Don't just consume and go, oh, this isn't as good as the next model. That's not enjoying it. No, enjoy it. Be grateful. Be thankful. Verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He says, if you're rich... You don't need to stop being rich, but you need to live like a rich person. You know how rich people live? They're thankful to God. They're filled with gratitude. They enjoy the good stuff God's given them, and they see it as a blessing from his hand. And they're generous, and they're ready to share. Right, this is one of the reasons why we do a Christmas offering every year. I think we mentioned that uh, last Sunday, that we're going to be doing another Christmas offering. You can start giving at any point you want to to be part of this. It's, part of it's going to go to Benevolence to help people in our church and community who need it. Part of it's going to go to help finish a learning center at Redemption Alhambra that's doing some awesome work in that inner city community. Some of it's going to go to our partners in Juarez who are looking to expand the kind of team center where people go and short-term teams like the ones we send every year go and they stay there. Why do we do that? Because it helps you practice being rich and generous. Why, why? Why does all that matter? Verse 19. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What is truly life? Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, your life consists in your connection to Jesus. And who is Jesus? Verse 15. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. That's what you want to live for? The eternal dominion of Jesus. That's truly life. Take hold of that. Be insatiable for that. Crave that. Yeah, buy presents, give gifts, be generous, enjoy it. That's great. But take hold of that which is truly life. Because the cravings are never, ever going to be enough. You'll never have a big enough house. you never have nice enough stuff. It doesn't satisfy. Take hold of that which is truly Life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the good gifts that you do give us. God, thank you that so many of us have far more than food and clothing and shelter. And thank you that many of us in this room have even eternal life. And Lord, someday our funeral's coming. And we'd like for someone to be able to say they took hold of that which was truly life. They enjoyed God's good gifts. They were generous and ready to share. They pursued godliness. They loved people. Now that's what we want to be known for. We thank you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.